Welcome to the Carbon and Cows podcast, brought to you by Washington State University and University of Idaho. This is Nina Gibson. In this podcast series, I dive into topics related to carbon markets and where dairy and livestock producers in the Pacific Northwest can play a role. Each episode, I interview an expert working at the forefront of this rapidly evolving landscape. From engineers to economists, we go into some of the nuances of existing and emerging regulated and voluntary carbon programs and different aspects of project development that may impact their long-term economic success. Let's get started. In this week's episode, we begin part two of the Dairy Digester Crash Course with Embry Bronstad and Georgine Yorgi, where we discuss things that can potentially go wrong when operating an anaerobic digester on farm. Installing a digester on farm at a dairy or livestock facility often involves hiring a private company with employees who are highly trained on biogas capture technology to conduct the digester's ongoing operations and maintenance. If you are a dairy or livestock producer though, this doesn't necessarily mean taking a hands-off approach to your digester. There are some key areas where your due diligence and capacity to learn about biogas capture technology can increase your digester's chance of success. Embry also discusses the potential impacts of cutting corners on a project in order to lower capital costs that can have an effect on the ability to operate and maintain the digester over time. We also touch on some of the complexities behind incorporating co-digestion and some factors to be aware of that may impact your digester's overall performance. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Carbon and Cows podcast. I have Georgine Yorgi here with me today co-hosting. Really excited to have her back on with me today. And we have Embry Bronstad back for part two of the Dairy Digester Crash Course to discuss things that can potentially go wrong when operating a digester. I'll pass it off to Georgine to get started out. Thanks, Nina. Last time we talked, you know, we talked fair bit about what daily operations management farmers might need to be aware of, what they should be thinking. And today I want to ask the question, you know, what kinds of things can go wrong that farmers need to be prepared to manage? Oh, 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 oh. oh we could talk hours about this. Um, this is why I, I hammer on operations and maintenance so much. I mean, so as we talked about before, Digesters are a living system. And there's lots of different bacteria that contribute to various processes within the digester. The end product of which is that methane or that biogas that we're trying to generate. And so within the digester itself, you can have shifts in those microbial populations 
so that one phase of digestion goes slower or faster than it's supposed to. And there's just ripple effects through the other bacteria in the digester and, and it all, it, everyone gets thrown off. Right. So it's, you can have sort of like, it's not exactly desynchronization, but the stages of digestion can get thrown off. And then you can have sort of like, um, uh, a, a feedback loop of issues that cause the digester to fail from um, a microbial standpoint. As we talked about before, you know, probably the first place you're gonna you're gonna see that is a pH change or um, a digester gas production change um, going from usually less gas <laughs> produced. Um, you can also see a change with respect to what is in that gas. So if there's less methane, suddenly you know that there's a little bit of a problem. Those, those issues are, um, those issues are, um, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say that they're more apt to happen with a co-digestion system, but there are some particular things that you have to think about when you're bringing something other than manure. Outside the digester, you can have I mean, a digester is supported by a lot of equipment. Um, people, again, kind of focus on just like the tank itself, but there are lots of parts and pieces that get poop from wherever it's coming from to the digester and out of the digester. So you have mixing systems within the digester um, that really help keep all that organic stuff that the bacteria you're trying to eat in contact with the bacteria. So if you have something as simple as a mixer failure, which is a mechanical failure, you can impact the operation of the microbial piece of the digester, right? So there's mixer failures or mixer inefficiencies. There's pumps that just break down, right? Just like any piece of equipment, you can have a pump failure. You can have, um, you know, uh, conveyance failure. And so that's again, back to some of the earlier discussions about when you're talking about designing this digester, what are some of these pieces that we're thinking about that if this pump breaks, my whole digester doesn't fail? Because we also have to consider just like you, right? Sorry, not to get too graphic, but when your body is done with digesting that food, it needs to get out. Right. And so if the pump that helps keep the poop coming out of the digester fails, then you might start impacting the, the digester might poke hill too. Right. So you want to have backups um, so that if that, if the pump again, like can't get this poop out of the digester, you have a backup mechanism to do that. So you've got both the mechanical pieces that can fail. And then you also have that sort of complex biochemistry within the digester that can be affected. Um, you know, I would argue that maybe the mechanical failures are easier to deal with, right? <laughs> um, especially if you have redundancy or you've built extra systems in that will, um, that you can turn on if there's a problem while we fix the other pump or whatever that's failed. Um, so, but yeah, those are, those are sort of the two big buckets of uh-ohs that we see with digesters. 
And Embry, before we move on, I just want to kind of circle back to, you know, this conversation is all about what can go wrong with a digester, but you told us last time digesters have been used for more than a hundred years in the wastewater facility. You know, I guess, talk to me a little bit about like, how common are these kinds of things? What's, you know, I guess, how worried should people be? Yeah. Well, again, so let's go back to then that does speak to what I do oftentimes hear in the dairy digester space about construction. So again, municipal digesters have been used for wastewater treatment for a, a long time, but we have all, but those digesters are also part and parcel of a system that cannot stop, right? And so we have in the municipal wastewater space built our design criteria and our industry standard is extremely robust. We have concrete tanks with concrete lids, with multiple pumps, with multiple mixers, with multiple types of instrumentation to make sure that our digester is functioning properly on the inside. So we have this extremely robust kind of belts and suspenders construction at a wastewater plant, again, because nobody is going to stop pooping and we always have to deal with that. Then you have the dairy, the dairy system where it's not necessarily a critical integral piece of infrastructure. And so people think that you don't have to design it as robust, right? Maybe um, the, the lids are um, not concrete, they're membranes, or maybe there's only one pump, as we were talking about before, to move things in and out. Because again, a lot of these are capital cost and ROI driven. And so if you can minimize the cost of the capital and the equipment from the outset, then your ROI gets a lot better. We don't have that in the municipal sector from, from you know, our primary concern is public health and safety. And so there is this, I think sometimes there is this tension between the two industries where it's like, well, we don't need to design a digester like a municipal digester. We just, we can go a, not to denigrate developers necessarily, but maybe we can go a little bit more on the cheap and not have multiple redundant belts and suspenders. And so I would argue that as a way to insulate yourself against the possible, um, you know, failures or mishaps at a digester, at, at a dairy, that there is a happy medium you don't have to design it like a municipal digester, but you should think about some of these things and build it a little bit more robustly and thoughtfully so that you don't necessarily, you know, open yourself up to these kinds of issues. Um, they're not common at a municipal dairy, or excuse me, at a municipal digester, um, but they do happen in, under the best of circumstances. And so again, Knowing that and building yourself a little bit of pad, even though it might look more expensive initially, will save you a lot in the long run. And remember, if your purpose of installing this digester is for gas generation for sale, you have to make sure that that digester is running and running well. And so it's probably in your best interest from a long, long game to put a little bit of money up front and to to think about, re, you know, redundancy and, and safety and things like that. Okay, that's a really great point there. Um, 
Our next question for you, Embry, has to do with the composition of biogas coming off of an anaerobic digester. You know, it's mostly methane, but there are some other gaseous impurities in there like carbon dioxide and hydrogen sulfide. Is that a particular challenge for an anaerobic digester at a dairy? Um, it's, I mean, it's not any more or less of a challenge at a dairy digester than it would be at a municipal digester. Um, you know, yes, biogas from a digester is generally 40 to 60% methane. Most of the rest is carbon dioxide with a lot of other like little parts and pieces in it. Sulf hydrogen sulfide, nitrogen, maybe <clears throat> ammonia, things like that. Um, the gas composition, the delta between the gas composition at a dairy digester versus a municipal digester treating human poop is not dramatically different. Um, you're still going to need to, at the minimum, scrub the hydrogen sulfide out of that digester gas, um, scrub the, maybe dry it because moist, you know, mechanical equipment doesn't like moist stuff. So if you're feeding that biogas into an engine for electricity production or you're feeding it into a pipeline, they do not want wet gas, right? So there are definitely some biogas cleaning um, that's going to have to happen regardless. And that's not that much different um, for a dairy digester than what we've been doing at municipal digesters for a long time. Sounds good. In our digestion processes also are highly temperature dependent. Um, and, you know, you, you touched a little bit on those microbes, keeping them comfortable and happy. And, you know, I understand they typically like sort of 95 degrees Fahrenheit to 105 degrees Fahrenheit, nice and toasty. And I know I would suspect that's challenging in especially cold climates or in the winter here. How do digesters on farm deal with that and how much of a challenge is it? Yeah. I mean, again, so let's distinguish between like a covered lagoon kind of anaerobic system um, versus a um, like a completely stirred tank reactor or something that's above ground. Um, and I would focus more on the... Um, ladder the bacteria themselves will generate heat right just like we generate heat we're i think about a, a 100 watt light bulb right that's how much energy we generate and so the bacteria themselves will generate heat again this is also part and parcel of design <laughs> did we consider like wall thickness what is this made what is this um digester made out of uh, does it have any sort of insulative properties? And then, you know, wastewater treatment plants use heat exchangers. Um, so they will have a boiler sometimes with hot water and exchange and have run the sludge from the digester through this heat exchanger to kind of keep that warm. Um, that is a that is a design consideration that you do have to look at. Um, but again, <clears throat> we have these all over the place um, deployed in all different kinds of climates. And so, yes, it is something that has to be considered, but it's definitely not a deal breaker. So for a covered lagoon digester, then do the microbes struggle in staying warm and alive in a Pacific Northwest climate year round? 
Uh, is that a challenge at all? The bigger issue that if, again, if that lagoon is, is because we want to generate gas, the bigger issue is frankly mixing. Because again, mixing is really, really key in digesters to keep the organic stuff that you're trying to get them to eat in contact, get the bacteria and the organic stuff in contact with each other all the time. And so you can, I mean, you've been out to dairies and seen lagoons, they're pretty quiescent, right? Um, and it's really when just like a swamp or just like a, a wetland, really that methane is being generated in the solids um, and in the poop and in the organic layer at the very bottom of the lagoon. And you don't really get a whole lot of it until you kind of like stir that stuff up, right? And so once you stir that that methane kind of rich sediment or poop that's been hanging out at the bottom of the lagoon and decomposing anaerobically, you don't really see a lot of methane. And so the bigger thing I would say with a covered lagoon again is not necessarily temperature, but mixing. Um, they're not, that's, that's going to be the key for gas production. I mean, yes, again, you need to keep an eye on um, temperature, but also what's the temperature of the stuff coming into the lagoon and <clears throat> does the temperature of that feedstock actually kind of keep the lagoon okay from a temperature perspective? Um, you have to kind of keep an eye on that. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Can you talk a little bit about co-digestion and, you know, just to define that for listeners who might not know that term, we're talking about adding non-manure organics to a digester that you know, has a base of manure to improve the biogas yield. Can you talk a little about challenges there? You know, how difficult is it to obtain organics and how does it increase <laughs> operational complexity? For sure. I mean, I think with the landfill diversion uh, regulations that have been recently implemented in Washington state, the procurement of organics is not going to be a problem. The problem is going to be, are there forks in it? Are there... <laughs> plastics in it is there saran wrap is there the the accidental battery you know how the quality of organics is really i think everybody runs into this problem right because you certainly can you can um cause damage to your equipment if there's just random junk in whatever you're bringing into the digester so um, another thing that, I mean, co-digestion is, let me just, let me back up. Co-digestion is great, right? Like if you want gas, um, putting some, putting some, you know, post-consumer food, food waste slurry slowly and carefully, we'll talk about that in a minute, into a digester will, will boost your gas production, but you do have to be careful about quality. You have to make sure that there is a guarantee of inerts so inerts are things that are things that are not organic like plastics and forks you have to make sure that those are screened out and have some sort of contractual guarantee that you're not going to have that in your feedstock and then once that stuff gets to your to your digester you may have to kind of slurry it on site because you can't just dump a whole banana peel into a digester right so how is that coming to you is that co-digested or that co-digestate um, 
coming to the digester already slurried and already kind of processed so that you can just dump it slowly and carefully into the digester or do you have to have extra equipment to pulverize it and homogenize it and get it all mushed up like a big milkshake before you get it into the digester and i'm sorry i don't think i answered your question about what co-digestion is it is it's bringing in other stuff besides poop other organics that can that can contribute to gas production that that and those are usually things like fats oils and grease right um grease trap waste things like that it's um uh food waste right source-separated food waste, both pre-consumer and post-consumer. Sometimes it's things like slaughterhouse offal and blood. Sometimes it's things like a uh, uh, soda bottling plant that has green sugars that they're trying to get rid of. They don't want to dump it down the waste margin. It can be all sorts of things, but it is organic stuff other than manure or human poop that can go into a digester as a, as a feedstock. Again, there's a lot of variability in what you can get. And I would strongly recommend that if you are thinking about co-digestion, you have really rigorous characterization of what you're getting. And there is a guarantee that that is what you're getting. Digesters are like us, you know, like I always give the example, if you are a vegan for 20 years and then you went and had a giant barbecue feast, you are going to get sick. You're going to get indigestion. And a digester is the same way. If you have been feeding a digester manure and suddenly you're bringing in a completely different feedstock, you have to bring it in very carefully, very slowly or you can shock those bacteria who've never seen this before and, and cause your digester to fail. So there's feedstock considerations with quality, and then there's also how you give it into the digester, how carefully and slowly you have to meter it into the digester, which also implies that you have storage ahead of the digester to hold that co-digest state if you need to so that you can feed it in slowly. Then you also have the digestate quality because co-digestion will change the quality of the digestate with, from a nutrient perspective. Usually higher nitrogen, right? So again, back to the nutrient management issues, if you are getting digestate back from a digester that has been co-digesting food waste or fog, then you need to understand exactly the characteristics of that digestate, which should also be part of the contractual obligation of that project. Documenting what the digestate characteristics are and giving you back as a dairyman a certain pound of nitrogen, not pound of poop back and, and denominate everything in a nutrient uh, value because di co-digestion will absolutely change what is coming out of the digester. Okay. And while we're on the topic of things that can go wrong, there's potential foaming events from the digester that can occur 
um, does co-digestion increase the likelihood of foaming from the digester? What should producers be aware of with that type of thing? Yeah, again, I think it's really um, that it just goes back. It just goes into the whole question of making sure that the people designing the digester understand what is coming to that digester from an organic loading perspective. Is it just manure? Is it co-digestate? Am I designing this digester for the appropriate load that I'm getting and ensuring again that the way that that co-digestion or that co-digestate material is being introduced into the digester matches what those bacteria and what that digester have been designed to handle, right? So it is, it's not just kind of like, I'm just going to throw some tomatoes or throw some stuff into the digester, right? There are both mechanical and microbial considerations, and it really comes down to designing the digester for the right organic load and making sure that your co-digestate stuff is being metered in properly and appropriately, um, and that you know what that co-digestate feedstock is. And it can't just be a bunch of random stuff that you're just taking from a lot of different people unless you have equipment that mushes it up and homogenizes it and enables you to kind of feed it in as you need to. Okay. Um, are there any specific chemicals a dairy would want to have on hand to address a digester, say if the pH is thrown off or any other parameter um, that they can address through adding something that they would want to have on hand? Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that we try to keep track of in the digester is alkalinity, right? And alkalinity, you can kind of keep an eye on as from your P as using pH as a proxy. But quite frankly, if you're starting to see changes in the digester that are pH or alkalinity related, you are not going to add a chemical to do like there is something else going on that you need to fix. And so, and so I'm not, you know. That's sort of like you're covering up that you're you are addressing the symptom and not the root cause. Well, I would I would I would not advocate for trying to use you know chemicals to address what I think is something going on in the digester. Well, thank you for the crash course there, Embry. Um, it was really enlightening and I think will be helpful for a lot of people. So thank you. I would just say thanks so much, Embry. I have a sense that co-digestion could merit its own episode because <laughs> um, it's a complex topic, but I think you've given us a sense of certainly, you know, some of the things that co can go wrong in terms of digester operation and what people should have in mind um, in terms of being able to manage. Sure. Thank you guys for having me. Join us next time on the Carbon and Cows podcast, where we interview Oliver Wiriseria from Shell Oil, and we discuss contracting with private investors on dairy anaerobic digester projects and get his perspective on agriculture's role in the clean energy transition. 
See you then. Thank you for listening to the Carbon and Cows podcast. You can subscribe to the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. For articles or links to resources mentioned in the podcast, as well as our contact information, please see the show notes. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission to support dairy and livestock industry. So please rate and review the podcast or reach out to us through email if you have any questions or if there are topics you would like for us to address in future episodes. The Carbon and Cows podcast is produced by the Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources at Washington State University. Editorial oversight and technical content expertise is provided by Georgine Yorgi, Marcos Marcondes, and Shannon Nybergs from Washington State University, and Hernan Tejeda from the University of Idaho. Aaron Whitmore provided production assistance. Other podcasts in the series are available at the Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources website, csanr.wsu.edu.